Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, you can join us on... I mean, if you're jumping in this late, kudos to you. Yeah, well done. We're on day 358 out of 365, so... The final podcast of 2023. If you if you are actually jumping in on this day for the first time, let us know, because we'd, we'd love to hear from you. But there you go. Yeah, that full man, that that would be a brutal week to jump in on, too, too only because we're hitting Revelation. Uh, but as you're reading along, we say this every week, we would love to answer those questions. Uh, as much as we can week over week at the end of our podcast, we have a segment where we take time to answer all of those questions from our dear listeners. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email to the address at info at grove.church. Uh, make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct message us on social media. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram handle, both of which are the Grove CH, uh, and you can direct message us there as well. Well, listeners, is with a heavy heart that I inform you that today <laughs> is a... It's a bittersweet day. Oh, you're doing this here? Our, oh, yeah. You got to do it at That's the front. Awesome. You got to let people know. Uh, this will be Aaron's final. Well, I don't I don't believe it's going to be his final podcast. I think he's going to come back once in a while. But next year, Aaron will not be the full-time co-host of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, he is he is taking a step back. So still at the church and everything. But Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's one of those things where I, I, I've wondered about this for probably a few months now. And the nature of my job now is... Uh, it's changed a lot since I first started jumping in the podcast full-time co-hosting. And uh, I just told Evan, I said, dude, my time is up. Like I just, I mean, to be spiritual about it, like there's just this sense of finality to this season and this ep- these episodes this year. And so um, we've had a lot of guests in this last year of podcast hosts. And so we've got a really incredible team here at The Grove that I think will do a phenomenal job. And so on one hand, it's sad because I've really enjoyed just the banter, the conversation, even the reviews and and hearing the stories of, of how the conversations Evan and I are having have really made an impact on on many of your lives. Like it's, it's just been an honor and a blessing to be part of it. But it's just that weird like season of completion, so to speak, for me with this. And so um, I don't know if it'll be forever, but I know right now in this next year, there's a lot com- on my plate that I've got to figure out and schedule-wise and navigate. And I have to say he, no to good things and to make sure I'm hitting the right things and the best things that I, I need to be overseeing and doing. So it's a different season for our church, a uh, different season for our church family, different season for me too. So uh, it's not goodbye. It's just there's other voices that are going to jump in and carry the bulk of the weight. So it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great season next year. Like I said, listeners, I'm holding out hope that Aaron will still be on a couple episodes next year, but like <laughs> no, no matter what, it will not be a, uh, it will not be what I don't know. We did probably 40, 47 this year, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah, I did one on by myself, by the way. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You did the vast majority <laughs> of them. Uh, so we'll, yeah, we'll be cycling through. We won't have one dedicated co-host because I think it's fun to get a bunch of voices totally. in anyway. So we'll have uh, a couple people that you heard last year and then a couple new people as well that you haven't heard yet. So uh, I'm excited. So yeah. I'll, I'll leave that as a surprise for our next episode, uh, which won't be dropping. It won't be dropping Sunday, by the way, just because... It's really busy and I don't want to try and figure out how to do it the week of Christmas. Yeah. So uh, we will be, there will be two episodes the first week of January. It's just the first one will be probably dropping on that Thursday. And then the second one will drop on that Sunday is the idea. So still read, we'll get the plan out there to people. Uh, I just realized we don't have the plan 
to announce right now. So keep uh, it'll be in the show notes. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. And if you, you if you have attached, if you're using Uversion and you have uh, made the Grove Church your home church uh, within the app, the plan will come up and be available there yep. as well. Um, so we're finalizing that plan for this next year with uh, our our lead pastor and executive team. Uh, so we should know by in the next day or so to know what we're what we're doing for the next year. But um, unfortunately, at the time of our recording, we recorded a day earlier this week as well because we have at the end of our year we always Christmas Carol uh, as a staff to some seniors in our church. So we drive around in a shuttle, show up Christmas Carol, visit with our seniors, pray with them, uh, and we kind of end the the work office year office work year uh, by caroling to our seniors before the Christmas weekend begins. So um, a little bit of information beyond the veil, but that way you understand, like we'll get the plan out there. It'll be linked in the show notes as soon as we can. Um, and then also keep the, keep the Grove church a party as your home church and new version. Then yeah. you'll know. That's true. Well, next year we have, uh, there's a couple things we're planning on being able to do to keep interaction up in new version. So they, they launched a couple things like church can do post now. And I believe comments and everything like that. So if you, if you're not, or if you don't have the Grove Church marked as your home church, um, well, I mean, unless your church does it as well, that you're, I mean, you know, we won't, we won't, we don't want to take you away from your own church. But if you don't, well, have a, no, I'm just if you don't have a church, jump in, call, yeah. and we'll have a community. All yep. right. Well, enough with that. Uh, we'll have we'll have more sappiness later, I'm sure. Uh, but we're gonna jump into our readings for this week. We're gonna do First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So yep. it's a good it's a good time. I will say this: I am thankful that we get to read Revelation after Christmas. Now. Unfortunately, Evan and I read through the Revelation before Christmas. It's true <laughs> to be ready for the podcast. But um, for all of us who are reading the plan and staying up to date as much as we can, Revelation hitting the day after Christmas is brilliant because we get to enjoy Christmas. So, oh yeah. Well, but before we get there, though, we'll get to some other books written by John. Yeah. Uh, these are the three letters written by John. So remember, we've always we've already read his gospel, which is his account of the life of Jesus, and now we're going to read his epistles, which are apostolic letters that he's writing. And we'll talk a little bit more about why this section is unique. And then we'll get to Revelation, which is completely unique in the New Testament. And uh, it, it's slightly reminiscent of a couple of books in the Old Testament as well. Uh, this seems These seem to all have been written pretty late. All things considered, uh, John is probably an older man and possibly at the point that he's writing this, the last original disciple left. We don't know that for sure, obviously, uh, but I, I would wager that Peter and Paul have both been executed at this point and that this is probably not long before John is spoiler exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is where he spoiler. writes. The, yeah, which is where he writes the Book of Revelation from. Uh, and these letters form an interesting trio. The first letter seems to be a letter that was meant to be copied and passed from church to church. Uh, the second letter seems to be written to one specific church, and the third letter seems to be written to the pastor of that church. So, well, you'll you'll see as we get into it and talk about it a little bit more. So, First John is the letter that is to the widest audience. So, this one is meant to be passed around. It's not meant to just be for one specific audience. And interestingly, John begins his letter with a very similar vibe to his gospel. So, remember, the gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and he kind of goes through and talks about how uh, Jesus is is God, right? He's going through, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, all those different things are happening. So, in First John, he begins this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. 
And we are writing these things so that your joy, sorry, so that our joy may be complete. So again, it's not the exact theme, but you notice that he, John likes to start this way. He likes to kind of get to uh, the very beginning of everything and remind people about who Christ is and, and what he's writing about. After this, John gets to one of the main themes of his letter, which is encouraging the church to live in light of Christ and without sin. So hate sin, purge it from your lives, and also live in light of what Christ has done. Uh, a great example of that would be 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says, But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which for my money is the second most famous verse in 1 John. So we'll get to the- For your money? For my money, like if I had to bet. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for my money. Yeah, that's a saying. That's the thing that people say. Uh, but yeah, so if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, listeners, if it sounds like I'm laughing sometimes, I'm not. I'm- uh, I have a terrible coughing. I don't know what you even call it right now. I have a terrible cough right now. So I'm trying to hold that back. So sometimes I'll just <laughs> sound a little bit weird, uh, but I'm, I'm doing my best. I had a, I had some Ricola and then I realized when I got up to the mic, you just hear it rattling around. Clicks that, in his teeth. Yeah, that's gross. You don't want to hear that. So I'm, I'm doing my best. I just wish you could see him as he's <laughs> pulling away a cough. It's like this quick little head turn, which is just funny to me. Oh yeah. So. Listen, all for you. I, you know, one day we'll have just a cough button. That'll be that'll be nice. Maybe, maybe after you're done with the podcast, I'll install a cough button for us. Uh, so in chapter two, it, he John is quick to remind his readers that while we should strive to live without sin, when we do sin, Christ is our advocate. So it's not this hopeless picture of put sin to death, and if you don't, you're going to hell. It's a reminder that no, like obviously all of us have sin. We all we all mess up, and we need to remember that Christ is our advocate, or in other words, Christ is the one who is on our side. Uh, John even includes. It's a poem rem reminding the different generations of why it's important to the obey the command of commands of God, which, okay, this could make me sound really stupid, but I don't think the poem was quoting anything if I, if I'm remembering right. And maybe I'm completely wrong on this and I just missed it as I was reading. I've been kind of out of it this week, but I, I believe John actually just straight up like wrote a poem, which would make him the only apostle to do so. so the only of, poet? Yeah. So, hey, good for you, John. I mean, I guess in his old age, he's gotten a little soft. He doesn't want to just do prose. Uh, so he finishes up chapter two with a warning against antichrists, uh, which, so don't think left behind right away. Uh, when John is, John, while John does reference the antichrist as one person, he also shares that many antichrists have already come. So it's kind of this, I think sometimes with, uh, with the way that we think about the end, which obviously we're going to be talking about a lot in Revelation, when we hear Antichrist, we think of like, it's this one figure who's going to rise up and do that, which again, that's like, you know, that's a, that's a perfectly valid way to interpret it, Revelation. Uh, but it's, John is also talking here about just the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of being against Christ and how there's been a bunch of people that have risen up to fight against Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, going into... Uh, chapter three, John reminds the church that we are the children of God and that we can find shelter in him. And because we are God's children, we should not make a habit of sin, but rather we should strive to love one another. Uh, and I love this message about how the world will view us. Because again, remember, John is writing to churches undergoing intense persecution. At this point, a lot of John's friends have been killed because of the, because they're proclaiming the message of Jesus. So this is not an empty... I think I think sometimes in the American church, we talk about, you know, stand up to persecution and it feels a little bit empty just because the vast majority of us do not actually undergo anything close to what the first century church would have understood as persecution. So remember when he's writing this, what he's going through, 
what the church is going through. And, and it gives us a pretty good idea of where his head is at. So this is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in love abides in death. Uh, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, So yeah, he uses the idea of like, he talks about Cain and Abel. And why does Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's, (laughs) he he says uh, his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so he talks about in light of that, you know, don't be surprised when people hate us. When when you do righteous things, don't be surprised when the world looks at that and bristles. Uh, And it's a, it's a good reminder for us today to when we undergo, and again, we don't undergo persecution nearly to the level that the, the first century church did, but even like the small little things that we undergo, don't be afraid. <laughs> it's a reminder that uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the world is offended by the gospel and we should continue to proclaim truth in love. Uh, as John continues, he reminds them that when our hearts condemn us, we should remember that God is even greater than our hearts. So when we feel in our own spirit, uh, our spirit is probably the wrong word, when we feel in our own flesh, the condemnation of sin and like there's no hope and like we don't um that we don't have the hope of salvation it's a reminder that god is greater than that uh he also reminds the church to guard against evil spirits and false prophets uh this hits a little bit differently when you realize that john may be the last eyewitness to, of christ alive in a prominent role uh and so i, I always think of when I try to imagine, you know, what is the headspace of the people that are writing it? and if it is true that john is writing this towards the end of his life and that most of the disciples are dead or missing He's kind of that last, he's kind of that last link to that generation who saw Jesus, who knew Jesus personally. And he's getting ready to, for lack of a better phrase, hand off the church to people who were who never met Jesus before. Um, and that would be that would be a really heavy thing. And so you get a really good picture of well, what what is the important thing that John is trying to communicate? And what's he trying to say? He's saying, uh, don't give in to sin. And love, love one another, love people. Like that's kind of his two big messages. And so I think it's, if that's John's big message to the church as he's getting ready to depart, I think that's a really important message for us to be able to listen to. Uh, And finally, we get the most famous, for my money, Aaron, the most famous uh, passage of all. What a festive choice of music. (laughs) Uh, What I think is the most famous passage of 1 John. This is 1 John starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does, or sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So obviously the first, the famous verses are the first two. This is the one, if you grew up in Sunday school, you might've learned the song when you were a kid. Um, but again, I love this idea. What is the main thing that John is trying to drive home right now? It's that we should love one another. Uh, And I love the picture of God loved us first and his love was made manifest in Jesus. Or in other words, Jesus is the manifestation. He's God in the flesh and he's showing us the love of God in a way that 
was never possible before. And that because of that love, because of the love that God shows us, we should always be ready to love one another. So really powerful message. I love that. Uh, John also talks about how perfect love casts out all fear, which I think is just a beautiful picture to paint in those moments. And then John wraps up his letters, or this letter, by reminding the church to keep God's commandments and not falling astray. And he ends with these words. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that he, we have requests and we, we uh, sorry, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Those who commit sins that do not lead to death, the sin, there are sins that lead to death. I do not say that no one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. This In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And in the last words of his letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's kind of an interesting little line at the end there. Uh, but yeah, John is talking about, again, showing love and also the idea of repentance. And so and this is where I think there's interesting contrast of sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. Um, what I would think this is talking about, and this is an open-handed thing because John's not super clear on this. I think this is referring to unrepentant sin versus uh repentant struggle, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, so the sin that leads to death would be sin that we just gleefully do, we know it's wrong and we just kind of keep going and we're not fighting, we're not struggling. Whereas sin that we, you know, it, like he says, you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and so I think that's the contrast that's being played out here. So, and it kind of reminds me of in Hebrews last week when we talked about there's similar language that was used for uh, sin that won't be forgiven. So that kind of idea there, yeah. that's what I think is happening. All right. That was First John. Second John. Uh, this, this letter reinforces many of the themes of First John. Uh, remember, this one is pro- they were probably delivered in a pack of three letters. The first one read to the church, and then it was meant to be copied and spread around. The second one is is to that specific church, it seems like, and then the third one would again be to a pastor. We'll talk about that one here in a sec. Uh, so Second John. Again, it addresses a lot of the same themes. And then he addresses the church as the elect lady and her children, uh, which Ooh. which leads some people to interpret this as being, uh, it's a a, uh, a pastor and her church. Um, I don't interpret it that way because especially at the end, like he signs off with uh, your elect sister and her children greet you. And so that seems to me to be the church he's at yeah. and that's where he's going. But you, you could interpret it that way. It's kind of an open-handed thing, but I, I would... It's it's open-handed, but I'm very convinced this is a church that he's writing to, yeah. if that makes sense. Uh, and so we get this passage, which sounds really familiar if we just read First John. It says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as they were commanded by the, fa- by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we had from the beginning. 
that we love one another. So I've read that somewhere before. Yep. Same language. He, I, we didn't read the passage in first John, but he talks about how this is not a new commandment. This is the mm-hmm. commandment we've had the entire time. He talks about the importance of loving one another. So he's reinforcing it to this specific church. Uh, and then this passage here gives us a good idea that the Gnostics are out in full force. Come um, on, man. If you don't know who the Gnostic, well, here, I'll let me read the verse. And I'll explain who the Gnostics were. Uh, so this is first, sorry, second John chapter one, verse seven. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Uh, So there's two kind of sides of the coin heresies that come up. There's Gnosticism and there's Arianism. Uh, Gnosticism is kind of the, is the, not kind of, it's the one that says that Jesus was just spirit. He wasn't man. Uh, And this is because a lot of Greek philosophy at the time, viewed the flesh as inherently worse than spirit. And so the goal was to kind of free yourself of the flesh and become spirit. And so they had a hard time believing that Jesus is fully God and fully man, because being fully man is a bad thing. Uh, so that's not what we believe. We believe that uh, obviously men are, uh, and when I say men, I mean mankind, uh, are broken and sinful, but that it's not inherently evil to be in physical form. And so the Gnostics believe that it was. And so they they believe that Jesus came in spirit, but that he was never here actually in flesh. Uh, Arianism is the other one where they believe that Jesus was fully man, but not fully God, um, that he was kind of a, a prophet and he is the greatest of all the prophets, but he's not actually God. And uh, Arius is the one who is um, putting that forward. And he's the one who got punched in the face by Santa Claus at the Council of Nicaea. So that's always a fun story to share around Christmas. St. Nicholas, the original St. Nicholas, when he heard this heresy at the Council of Nicaea, he got up out of his chair, went down to the floor, and he punched the guy in the face. So, you know, for those who say Santa Claus doesn't love Christ... He absolutely does, kids. So there you go. Santa, Santa punches heretics. Uh, so anyways, so the, the reason I say we kind of get the idea that the Gnostics are out in full force right now is because John is talking about how specifically they believe that they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, also, you should know the Gnostics are the ones who wrote like the false gospels. Uh, so that would be like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas. If you read those, they're very specifically talking about very Gnostic ideas. Um, and I remember, I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but me and Aaron had a, we did a class a few years ago and someone brought up like, well, yeah, how do we know that like these gospels aren't like the real ones? And I, my answer is always just read them. Like <laughs> if you read, if you read those gospels, you're going to come away pretty quickly being like, oh, this has nothing to do with Christ. Like this is clearly just like some philosophy. It's not even written like the other gospels. I can't remember if it's Thomas or Jews. I think it's the gospel of Thomas has the part where Mary Magdalene gets to become a man because like she did so well. And she's like, hey, good for you. Here you go. You're a man now. And Magic. He's like, now you don't suck because women won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so you're like, wait a second. That's not anywhere else in the Bible. What is going on right here? So yeah, if you, you know, they're, they're I think wacky. It's, it's interesting because I think sometimes even in that class, right? Because we brought up the topic, whatever. I think it's sometimes I think as Christians, we feel like we shouldn't even entertain the thought that something else is worth reading. Uh, well, it can't be. It's against the Bible. I'm not going to read it. Like we're so like anti something. But I think it's really important. Like the gospel is the gospel. Like it, it doesn't, you don't need to protect it. it. It was never meant to be protected. It was meant to be shared. And so I think there's a challenge of, if I can just encourage anybody listening, like it's okay to read those things. Don't read them as the gospel, read the gospel too, like read the scripture. And so that way you can then discern what's right and wrong, because I could see anybody taking the gospel of Thomas or whatever it is. Well, it happened then it's got to happen now. Like there's got to be like, I can totally see the the lie and the deceit that can play in. But I just think right. it's, 
like even in the class, I was, I remember like, don't be afraid to read them. Like there's common sense in the midst of this and there's discernment. So, uh, don't be afraid to, to lean into that and trust the fact that what's true is true. What's wrong is uh, false is false. Yeah. If, if what we believe is true, we should not be afraid of things that challenge that belief. hundred percent. And so it's the same reason I like to listen to, um, like debates and like, I like to hear what atheists are thinking, what a bunch of arguments are, because it's, I think so, when I was younger, I was really scared because like, oh my gosh, what if they like convince me? To yeah, absolutely. God? And I think that's the fear. It's yeah. like, I don't, I don't want, I got to stay away from doubt. No, like doubt is part of faith. Yeah. And, and now honestly, like I can listen to an argument and you realize you can put it together. You can logically think through what they're actually saying and not just kind of like the hyper emotion of it. And you can be like, oh, like this is, this you is You can't, I still get caught up in the hyper emotion. Okay. Well, hyper emotion seems to get caught up, <laughs> but it's one of those things. You have to strive to step out of You're it. You're more logical than me. Hey. Anyway, uh, so I don't know what I was going to say there. Uh, sorry, but back to second John. You thought it was like a jab. It was not. We did a little bit of a, we did a little bit of a sidebar there on the Gnostics. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, so John ends this letter by reminding the church to not receive false teachers. So hey, like if anyone's getting out there, don't don't just bring them in and let them teach. You know, test their doctrine. Uh, and then he also says that the church he's at says hi, and this is where I said the the elect sister, your your elect sister and her children greet you is the line at the end, I believe. So there you go. All right. Third John, this is written to a man named Gaius, who I think is the pastor of the church in Second John. That seems to be what's happening here. Um, he rejoices, John does, in the reports that he has heard of the church. So people have been coming from the church and they've been saying it's been doing awesome. Uh, the church is also seemingly sending out missionaries. And so he's commending Gaius, like, hey, good work with uh, bringing these people up and sending them out and getting the gospel preached. Uh, he, we also get, listeners, we get the hot goss on some uh, <laughs> on some drama that's going on at the church. Oh my gosh. So this is one of the most like blatantly just... If you don't know what Evan's meaning, he's saying gossip. Hot goss. Hot gossip. I don't know. Uh, You can't see it, but I'm totally shaking my head. This is 3 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And this is John speaking. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want who want to and puts them out of the church. Uh, so imagine for a moment getting rebuked by John the disciple. Like you're doing pretty bad stuff if John's like, Gaius, here's the deal. If I come, I'm going to give this guy a real talking to. So if I, when I, when I get there, just you, it's almost like a wait till your dad gets home situation. So diatrophies, um, on the bright, I'm coming on the bright side, got his name in the Bible on the bad side, got it in the really wrong way. So hopefully one day we get to meet Diotrephes in heaven because he repented. And then he's just like, yeah, I wish they would have just kept my name out of it and just said that guy. So <laughs> like in Revelation, when they talk about the people who are a problem, they're probably like using symbolic names and not their real names, but they don't do that for Diotrephes in third John. But what are you going to do? Uh, John ends the letter with saying that he hopes to come see Gaius soon. Uh, so he won't write as much now. So basically it's like, hey, I'm keeping the letter short because I'm hoping to come see you soon. So Hopefully that actually happened. Hopefully John wasn't uh, exiled to Patmos right after he wrote this. Hopefully he got to go see the church and say hi and everything. So, but we'll find out one day on the other side of eternity. Uh, but that's, there you go. And that's, again, I love these flourishes in the letters because it just lets you know that they're real things. Because that's not, if you're trying to communicate a philosophy, if you're trying to, you know, use the name of John to make something happen, you're not just going to essentially say, yeah, this guy's a real problem, isn't he? Anyway, I'd write more, but I'll come see you soon anyway. Bye. Like that's not, that's not the way that you would structure it. So there you go. All right. (coughs) We alive, alive. We arrive now at the last epistle 
of the whole Bible. This is the last letter that we have in the New Testament. And this is the book of Jude. Uh, Jude it's a very is, long one, so buckle up. Oh yeah, it's oh, I, I, in fairness, it's longer than Third John and Second John. I think I think it's longer than Second John as well. So, but it's only one chapter. So, you yeah, on this day in the reading plan, you will have read three books of the Bible all the way through. So, congratulations to you, listener. And it would have taken you more than two minutes. Evan said last week that he has, it would only take you about two minutes for one, for Evan. one of them. No, you implied all of them. No, did I? Oh, yep. I, go back and listen, bro. Oh, if that's what I implied. And I, then you said you're going to come to this week and you're going to read one of the letters in two minutes, and I was going to call you out on it. So I you thought didn't do it, any of that. So I legitimately thought about it in the uh, when I was doing the notes, and I was like. My cough is so bad. I don't want to try and commit to that. But uh, listeners, if I if I said all three, I definitely meant that you could Liar. read one of them in two minutes. And I had in mind one of the Johannine letters. Not <laughs> the not funny thing. Jude. I legit, I legit reading through this. I legit put a timer as I read through Second John. How long did it take like, you? A minute and forty five seconds. Uh, what did I tell you? Yeah. No, you implied all of it. Ah, so. All right. Well, that's enough. Enough of that. Listeners. I dwell on technicalities. Uh, Jude is the other brother of Jesus who wrote a book of the Bible. So poor Simon, I always put, so I call him the Cooper Manning of the Jesus brothers. Cause you got James is like the Peyton Manning. Jude is like the Eli Manning. And then, you know, Simon never made it to the big leagues. He never got to, <laughs> he never wrote a, uh, he had his own successful career. I'm sure. So Cooper, if you're listening, I'm sorry that Evan is the way he is. I mean, I Cooper, if you're listening, you're much better at football than I ever was or will be. So don't take my jabs. You're not wrong. Don't I've take no play. Don't take no guff from me, Cooper Manning. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is a, another very short book. After introducing himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, Jude pretty much gets straight to the point. So it, that's what all the short epistles have this in common. They get straight to the point. Uh, so this is Jude chapter one, verses three through four. It says, beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary, uh, Sorry, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For, a cert for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so at this point, we don't, we don't know when Jude was written, but as you can see where it's at in the chronological plan, we think it was very late. Which means at this point, James, his brother, is probably dead. Uh, so Jude is, if if John is the last disciple who's left, Jude is right in that group where it's he's true. he's probably he's probably the last brother of Christ who's left. Um, he's one of that last generation who knew Christ, and no one knew Christ better than his brothers, James and Jude. I guess I shouldn't say that because during the ministry, Jesus revealed a lot about himself to Peter, James, and John. But uh, Jude would have known Jesus very well. And again, we talked about this when we went through James. But don't, don't, don't take for granted the idea that Jesus' brothers died believing that he is God. <laughs> like that, that is an incredible thing. That's an incredible evidence that Jesus actually is who he says that he is, that James and Jude believed it and, and were willing to die for it. So there you go. Uh, as Jude continues, he reminds his readers that God also saved the Israelites out of Egypt, but then destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, so... Remember, if we're thinking back to, I mean, the first months of the Bible reading of the Bible reading plan this year, uh, God saves the Israelites and they get into the wilderness. And then those who don't believe, God just lets them all die because he's saying, yeah, you heard the truth. You rejected it. I'm going to use another generation instead. Uh, what Jude is saying here is essentially we're in the same boat where you've heard the truth, but 
you're not, you're not believing. Paul uses the same, I forgot what letter it's in, but Paul uses the same, or maybe it was in Hebrews. I'm, I'm mixing up the letters now, but it was one of those letters where it's talking specifically about how there's a generation of Israelites who have heard the truth, but they're rejecting it. And Jude is kind of talking about the same thing here. Uh, interestingly, when Jude says, Jude says it's Jesus who brought the people out of Egypt. And so this is very clearly saying that Jesus and, and Yahweh are the same, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit make up what we call God, what we call Yahweh. It's very confusing, but like I said, God, <laughs> it's almost like God exists in a way that is beyond human comprehension and we won't really understand on this Wait, side of what? eternity. Wait, no. so I used to try and explain the Trinity. You know what I mean? Like, cause you can do like the, totally. the shamrock or the egg where it's like, you know, there's the shell and the white and the yolk, but it's all the egg. And then I, I eventually, I just realized like, no, like you just have to say God exists in a way that we don't understand. And we just have to be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> like we, we can't comprehend it. It is what it is. Um, anything else kind of tries to, it makes it lesser than it actually is. That's very true. Uh, so to use examples as examples of the blasphemy of false teachers that Jude is talking about, he uses, this is very unique sources in Jude. This is kind of the, the what Jude is famous for. It's very for. true. Uh, the first story is completely unknown. We have no reference to it from the Bible or extra biblical sources. So we know, I mean, it, it somewhere <laughs> it was recorded, but we have no idea where it came from. Uh, and it's a story about the archangel Michael, and he's fighting with Satan over the body of Moses. And so we all we know is what we hear from in Jude. And Jude says that when Michael and Satan are fighting, Michael does not blaspheme Satan himself, but rather he says, the Lord rebuke you. So in other words, Michael knows his place. He is not himself uh, pronouncing judgment. He is asking the Lord to pronounce judgment. So there you go. So it kind of gives you an idea of some of the heresy. Does it give us a good idea of the heresy? Nope. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's kind of like a... Uh, it, maybe it's a kind of demon possession heresy where they're trying to do exorcisms, but they're not calling out in the name of Christ, but they're just kind of trying to do it in their own power. That's completely open-handed and could be wrong, but I'm just trying to think of like, why is, why is Jude yeah. using this example? Who knows? Uh, the second example, we actually do know where it's from. It's from the apocryphal book of First Enoch, and it's a prophecy of Enoch. Uh, and so this prophecy is about the return of Christ and the Lord executing judgment in the last, in the last days. Um, so while we don't consider the book of Enoch to be scripture, clearly Jude at least considers this prophecy to be accurate. And it's a good reminder that, I know we've said this before, I, I'm sure we talked about it in the episode where we actually hit up the intertestamental period. Um, the, the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels are different. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels are straight up heretical false Gospels. Uh, like I said, don't be afraid of reading them because you'll see that they're off the wall. They're yeah. bonkers. Uh, you'll, you'll see that when you read them. Uh, the Apocrypha is not heretical. Um, it is, or at least, I mean, I, I haven't read through the entirety of the Apocrypha, full disclosure. I plan on doing that this next year though, because I you know, practice what I preach a little bit, uh, but I have read parts <laughs> of it. Uh, but it, it's not on the whole heretical, what I would compare it to is the writings of the early church fathers. Like first Clement is a letter, for instance, that we have from early church father. Uh, we don't consider it to be scripture, but it's still good. It's still good Christian doctrine that we can, that we can learn from. I would say the apocrypha is the same thing as we don't consider it to be scripture, but it's good to learn. It's good to read. It's good to kind of know what's happening and all the sort of things. And the book of first Enoch is one of those. Uh, and then Jude ends his letter. Like we said, it's very short. Uh, he ends his letter with some encouragement and a cool doxology at the end. He says, but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment, the garment stained by the flesh. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. It's a good way to end it. I like that. Those could could have been the last words of the Bible. But we're going but into Revelation. And, the, and, and in fairness, the last words of Revelation are sweet too. So I'm, yeah. not, I'm not complaining. It's a good time. But Aaron will be talking about those. Uh, but I'm actually hitting up the first six chapters of Revelation. And then Aaron's going to take it from there. So Revelation is the final book of the Bible and is also written by John. At this point, he had been exiled to the island of Patmos. We read that in the first couple chapters. However, while he is there, he is given an incredible series of visions by Jesus. And so he records them in this book. Uh, you'll notice a lot of similarities between Revelation and then and parts of Daniel and Ezekiel. So basically the less famous parts of Daniel, <laughs> you'll notice a lot of similarities. And then a lot of Ezekiel, you'll you'll notice a lot of the symbolism is is very similar there. So Sometimes Revelation gets talked about like it's the only book of the Bible that's like that. It's not exactly true. It's the only book of the Bible that's fully like that. Like there's almost, it's pretty much all of that kind of apocalyptic literature, except for the first section. So even that's not really true. But parts of Daniel and parts of Ezekiel are pretty similar to what Revelation is doing. So uh, the first song, (coughs) oh, sorry, listeners. The first vision that John sees, uh, he sees Jesus and he's so terrified that he freezes and falls to the ground and Jesus then comforts him. So we get this in chapter one, verses 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, as sorry, as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Those are, those words are going to come up again, by the way. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Uh, that question is going to come up a little bit later today. Uh, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that aren't, uh, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this brings us to the first kind of big section of Revelation, which is a message to seven different churches. Uh, we actually did a series on this earlier this year. So if you want to learn more about that, it's called Off the Rails. Uh, I, I spoke in that one. Aaron, I don't remember if you spoke in that series I, or not. Uh, I did speak in that yeah. one. Yeah. Laodicea. Boom. I did Sardis. So if you want to hear me and Aaron's thoughts on two of these, then... Yeah, off the rails. Go for it. Uh, so the first message is to the church at Ephesus, and which is an important reminder for us today. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing for up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, we're, okay, we're starting off pretty good. Ephesus is doing great. And then he goes, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it's it's a really good reminder. It reminds me of Paul in... It's first, yeah, first Corinthians when he talks about how you can have all of the gifts of the spirit, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal or a banging gong. It's kind of what Ephesus is doing here. It's like, hey, you're doing really well. You're standing up for right doctrine, uh, but you don't have love. And so you're being that noisy gong. And so this is a rebuke. And remember all these, these are not rebukes from John. These are rebukes from Christ himself. These are the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, these are, these are read in that Bible. So it's a pretty sobering message that the church of Ephesus would have gotten. Uh, The next message is to the church at Smyrna. 
uh, Jesus tells them that they are about to undergo intense tribulation, intense tribulation, uh, but that if they are faithful <coughs> unto death, they will receive the crown of life. So Smyrna seems to be doing pretty good. Jesus is warning them that it's going to get worse, which is, you know, that's not what you're hoping for in a message, but I guess it's it's better than you're really screwing it up right now. Uh, the next message is to the church at Pergamum. Uh, here they have been undergoing intense persecution for some time. Uh, Jesus commends their faithfulness, but rebukes them for entertaining heresy, specifically that of the Nicolaitans, uh, which unfortunately we know nothing about. Uh, I tried to look into this. There is just no evidence about, no, no good evidence about what exactly this is. So it hasn't survived to today. So apparently, unlike the Gnostics and the Arians, where we have a pretty good idea of what they believe, this heresy seems to have hopefully died out pretty soon. Hopefully it died out because the church at Pergamum was like, you know what, you're right, we're putting it to death. So, but who knows? Uh, and then this sin is compared to the Israelites who entertained, entertained Balaam. So if you remember back to Numbers, Balaam, he's the prophet who has the talking donkey for a little bit and he gets paid to try and curse Israel. Uh, that's the story that's famous. He comes back later on in numbers and he actually convinces a lot of the Israelites to worship Baal. At this point, he is killed by by, by God himself. So that's the idea here. So that by entertaining these heresies, you're like the generation of Israelites who entertained Balaam. Uh, after this, the message is to the church at Thyatira. Uh, they have tolerated a woman named Jezebel. Uh, this is probably Old Testament symbolism, or she was just incredibly well-named for what she was going to do. But I'm guessing that it's using the Queen Jezebel of the Old Testament as symbolism for uh, what she's doing. Uh, she has been leading a large portion of the church into sexual immorality, and Jesus rebukes them for listening to this, basically engaging in sexual immorality as the church. He says, stop it. Don't tolerate. Bad. And I guess when it says you tolerate the woman Jezebel, that could be specifically there is a woman in the church who is kind of leading the charge, or it could just be the idea. The idea of sexual immorality in general being personified as as Jezebel. So, uh, could you could interpret it either way on that one? Uh, the next message is to uh, the church in Sardis. Here, Jesus warns them that they must live in light of his return because they have grown complacent. So he's basically saying, "You've fallen asleep at the watch. Uh, wake up." Sardis, don't do that. I, when I, so I did the message on this. So I, I looked a little bit deeper into it when I was actually preparing it. And it's where I found out that Sardis had, whether or not it happened, it was at least a local legend that the people were aware of. Um, but they had a legend about a couple of the times that the city fell. It was because the watchman fell asleep on the job and didn't see the, the army coming. So this would have been a very important metaphor for them. Uh, the next message is to the church at Philadelphia. This one's the one, you know, if you're one of the churches, this is the church you want to be because uh, like Smyrna, they seem to be doing a real bang up job. Unlike Smyrna, uh, they're not going to be undergoing more persecution than they are already. So it's basically Jesus like, hey, you guys are doing awesome. It's going to get easier. Yep. Way to go. Uh, love, well, hold on. Love that for Philly. Uh, and to be clear, obviously, we're not talking about, you know, American Philadelphia. We're talking yeah. about Philadelphia and, oh, I should have known where it's at. Somewhere in Greece or Turkey. I don't remember which spot. So I'm a dummy. I should have looked at it. Oh, well. Uh, and the last letter is to the church at Laodicea. Uh, and this is another one to ponder for us. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you from my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, so there you go. It's and, and it's a very famous refrain that Jesus gives, or that the Bible gives a few times, the idea of don't be lukewarm, like be hot or cold. Uh, and so it, it's similar to me to the reminder of, um, I should have looked up what church, where am I at? The church that was 
complacent. Oh, Sardis. Duh, that's the one I did. So there you go. It's a very similar. <laughs> it's, it's a very similar warning to that one. Yeah. Uh, after that, we wrap up this section of Revelation, and John gets another vision. Uh, this time, he is shown a figure. I think this is God the Father. Uh, his appearance is of jasper and carnelian. So this would be a very vibrant red stone um, and then kind of like a bluish, like a light blue white stone is kind of if you look it up together. So somehow those things mixing is is the, it's like the, it's pretty, I love the, mess, the, uh, the way that John describes it. Um, I also think it's important to say, because sometimes we think that like, oh, it's going to look exactly like this. I don't think that's what John is getting at. I think he's just trying to find the words to describe what he's saying. So it's not meant to be a perfect picture. It's meant to just be John using what he has available to him right now to kind of explain what what this vision is looking like. Anyway, this figure is seated on a throne and flying around the throne are angels and they have a the the basic appearance of certain beasts, uh, but they are covered with eyes front to back and they have great wings and they're flying around the throne and they're chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. Uh, and if you are of my generation, Carrie Job's voice immediately just jumped into your mind and the revelation song got, got going. So there you go. I love that song. Uh, he then sees- one of, one of my least favorites. I know. We have, we have this argument a lot. Not argument, but- uh, Disagreement. Yeah. It's a good time. It's just too wordy. Yeah, you know, I like. It. I mean, "Hark the Herald Angels" is my favorite uh, I don't like Christmas it song. It's yeah, because it's, it's wordy. Yeah, so I mean, there you go. Although for what it's worth, I don't like "King of Kings" because it's too wordy. So I am I'm a hypocrite on that one, but. I love Hark the Herald Angels. It's so good. Anyway, uh, after this, John sees uh, the 24 elders cast their crowns before Christ and they declare, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, we then get this amazing, amazing vision. Uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Sorry. So when I say they cast their crowns down, they're, ca they're casting their crowns before the father. Um, and then we'll, we'll see Christ. Cause I say that because we'll see Christ here in a second. Uh, so this is first, uh, sorry, revelation chapter five, verses one through eight. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open a scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's, that's Jesus, yeah. the root of David has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I, I love this picture of Jesus of basically who can open the scroll? No one is worthy. What's going to happen? And then all of a sudden, you, it kind of like pans to the crowd and you see this lamb. And it says it looks like it had already been sacrificed. So it's like a dead lamb come back to life 
And then it's, it's, it, obviously it's, it's Jesus. <laughs> He's saying, I can open the scroll. So it's, it's super cool. I love it. Um, after this, there's an intense buildup to the opening of the scroll. So I can, we can't go over everything, but read that. It's really cool. Uh, and then each seal is broken and we see what they all were. And this is where we get some of the more famous verses from Revelation. Uh, it says, now I, when I wa- <coughs> now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and that, and he was given a great sword. And when I saw the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And when I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil or wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed with him. If you like Tombstone, that's probably what came into your mind there, but maybe not. I don't know. Aaron, you like, are you Tombstone guy? You like Johnny Ringo? Yeah. I mean, not Johnny. Oh, yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good time. Anyway. Uh, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed uh, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished and the scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. Well, Aaron's going to pick that up in here. <laughs> so I, I love I love the image. Revelation is incredibly hard to interpret, and sometimes oh, dude, I, it's I, insane. Yeah, and sometimes I think it, it not sometimes. I think it very much behooves us to try and keep the main message of Revelation as the main message and go in with an open hand. Um, but with all that being said, I love the imagery and the way it's just describing like what's happening. It's yeah. great. Uh, but before Aaron jumps into the last bit of revelation. Uh, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review if you haven't yet, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcast. This episode is coming out on December 24th, Christmas Eve. So yep. if you want to get us a Christmas present, leave us a five-star yeah. review. Uh, this week we had two come in and we're just going to read them both because again, this might be Aaron's last episode. At the very least, it's Aaron's last episode. Well, for it's the last episode of the year too. We're not dropping another one after this. That's so. true. So we, um, want to re- we want to read 
both reviews yes. that we got on Apple Podcasts. So Aaron, take it away. Yeah. So the first one's from Yaya Girl. Uh, it says this, this is my first year reading through the Bible with this podcast and it is fantastic, exclamation point. Evan and Aaron do such a wonderful job of engaging with the listeners that I don't feel alone when I'm listening, which is kind of a fun little compliment. We, we've strived for a dialogue, co- banter, back and forth conversation style. So it's fun to see that coming across. Uh, it's like everyone who else, uh, everyone else who also listens is in the same room giving a sense of community. I listen every night before bed and it helps me fall asleep. And I love that she says this. And before you guys ask, no, you're not boring. Listen to your Thank com- you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It says, listening to your commentary of the Bible helps bring my focus back to God at the end of the day. And that piece gives me a restful sleep. Thanks so much for what you do. It makes a difference, uh, which is really rad. Thank you for that uh, review. Uh, and then we also got one from Chandler Boy Mom. Uh, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is an updated review uh, because I'm pretty sure I remember shouting her out later, but I could be wrong. So if not, thanks for leaving the review a better for the first time, maybe. Me. But it says this. It says, I know I love how this podcast flows through the Bible. The guys are informative and entertaining. I've grown up a church regular and still hear new ideas and or new ideas, inspiring thoughts from this podcast and continue to grow in faith. And so uh, I appreciate those reviews. And yeah, as Evan said, would love for you to take a moment uh, before the end of the year, leave a review. I know we're getting close to 300 ratings in Spotify, we're at 146 in Apple Podcasts. It's just been, been fun to see uh, your engagement. So thanks for doing that. Uh, and before the end of the podcast, I'll just say it this way. Merry Christmas to you. So uh, yes, Revelation, I'm going to be honest with you, is one of the densest books and the, the hardest to understand. And the best we can do is is allow the, the imagery to be the imagery. And even as Evan said before we went into reviews, is to carry open-handedly this picture and this tension of what it means. But at the same time, it's also worth reminding and reiterating as we jump into some of the heavier parts of this book, where we're going to start reading more about these seals, we're going to wrap up the seal section. We're going to jump into the bowls. We're going to jump into this idea of the wrath of God. We're going to see this dragon and this pregnant woman, then this child, like all of these things there. It's meant to, to help us see in, in ways that we can kind of understand what's going to happen when Christ, when everything's culminated in the arrival of Christ again, the culmination of God's new Jerusalem, new kingdom, new earth, and so um, it's 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 an incredible picture. It's an incredible with the imagery, and it's just an incredible book to read. Um, and so it's so dense, so profound, so deep, and so uh, just read it slowly. Try to understand. Try to wrap your head around what's going on, because sometimes I feel like in this book there's a ton that's happening. Uh, so Revelation seven is. The final seal, uh, we get this chapter where the final seal is ending, uh, and then we get really two visions that make up this in-between, uh, between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So the sixth seal has been opened in chapter six, and then the seventh seal is coming to be open, but it's not open yet. Uh, but we see this uh, one side of it, this two, these two visions. One is this uh, sealing of the 144,000 servants of God on earth. Um, in essence, it shows the saints, it shows this, this, this complete number, this full number, and we can read that literally, or we can read that as a large sum of people. Um, there's not real a clear. This is what it means, but it's. I've I've known and and I growing growing up as a kid, I read it as 144,000 people. Period. That's it. That's who is referring to this moment. Um, but it seems to be there's a bigger implication of a larger totality of number. It means a complete uh, number because it's 12,000 from each tribe. There's 12 tribes. 12 times 12. If you're good at math, is 144. Uh, you add thousands to that, so it's 144,000. So you see this rising up of the the, the and the seal uh, given to the 144,000 of God's people. 
Um, and then it shows after this, there's an innumerable multitude arriving in heaven. And so you get the saints rising up, being uh, established as the election, as the people the seal, that have been marked by the seal. And then you get the multitude of those who have responded uh, and even the implications that it, it it has potentially implications of those who have withstand the trials, the tribulation, who are being raised at the at the end time, at the end of days, and coming into heaven and culminating in this incredible moment. So we get uh, this picture. And then we see even in chapter six, this question that was who is able to stand here. You get it answering in the reference to the 144,000 followed by this vast multitude. Um, and in chapter seven, we also are introduced to the seven trumpets. Um, and these are this, this vision that's been given, uh, which I'll read here in just a moment, but we're then introduced to the seven trumpets. So chapter eight starts with the seventh seal. Uh, and the seventh seal is there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So the seal is broken and there's silence in heaven. It means there's no it, it utter And so I, I, in our day to day, it's really hard to picture silence, to really understand absolute silence. But there's silence in this moment. And then coming out of this silence, there is this vision that John has of seven angels in heaven who are given seven trumpets. And then he has another angel that he sees that's holding a golden incense burner and came and stood at the altar and were give, and then we're given this incredible passage in chapter eight, verses two through six. It says, then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense, burned it, filled it with fire from the altar, hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So we get this incredible moment where John is seeing in this vision, uh, the seventh seal is broken and there's absolute silence for a half hour. And then the seven angels come forward who stand in the presence of God. They come forward and they're each given a trumpet. And then there's another angel that comes forward with a golden censer, uh, an, ins- an incense burner. And he's given incense, but he's also a, in combination. Incense is meant to be a, a, an aroma pleasing to God. It's this worshipful, powerful moment that, that draws back to the, the tabernacle times. And it's this incredible thing where all of a sudden the prayers of the saints, those who are standing there, the 144,000, the multitudes is there. They're praying and, and worshiping God in this moment. And out of this moment then comes uh, the censors then thrown to the earth. And these peals of thunder, rumblings, flash of lightning, and an earthquake happen. And it's this uh, um, prelude to this these trumpet blasts that are, are going to come. You see the scene intensify in chapter 8, and then the trumpets are blasted. And one by one, they're blasted. And the, f- the first one, when the trumpet is blasted, we hear, we see of hail, we read of hail, fire, that's mixed with blood was hurled into the sea. It says a third of the trees were burned up and all of the green grass was burned up. That's what happens out of the first one. The second trumpet blast, we get this great mountain that's ablaze with fire thrown into the sea and it turned to blood. It's like this volcanic mountain that explodes and it's thrown in, it throws itself into the sea and the sea turns into blood. It says a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this, this, this wrath is unfolding, this, the, the, the power of God is unfolding to bring down judgment on sin and all those who have rejected. He's already established and drawn up and elevated the, uh, you know, the shows the 144,000, shows this vast multitude of worshipers and followers of God. And then it says that these trumpet blasts are creating havoc 
and creating punishment and wrath as they're on, on earth. And so we have these two trumpets. Then we get this third trumpet where it says this great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It says a third of the rivers and springs became wormwood. Now wormwood back in, in Israel and in, in Jerusalem at this time is like a non-poisonous but bitter plant. And so it's not very pleasing water. And it says that many people died. It doesn't give us a number, but it says many people died at this point. It's also so this a, is the third trumpet. It's also a great name for a demon, wormwood. So if you're an author writing a book, a little yeah. screw tape letter humor for Shout you. Shout out to C.S. Lewis if you're listening. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <You're listening. laughs> uh, so the third trumpet blast, we get this great star blazing torch, third of the rivers and springs become wormwood. Many people die because the water is not good to drink. And then the fourth trumpet blast, it, it says a third of the sun was struck. Uh, it's funny in my notes, I put S-O-N instead of S-U-N. So uh, the wrong sun, but still the sun, uh, the sun that shines light, not the sun hey, I forgive you. Of, of a father. Uh, it says a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and stars. So they all became darkened, which it would be just a remarkable thing to even consider what that would look like. Um, and it says a third of the day was without light. Um, and a little fun fact for you, these first four trumpets, they mirror the plagues of Egypt, just an FYI. So you probably say, oh, I remember, I heard about these, or these seem familiar to me. Go all the way back to the very beginning of the podcast in the first few months, and you'll remember Exodus and the plagues. So I've never, I've never thought about that before. That's a great point. So, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I just, I don't know, I just been like, oh yeah, you, bro. some plagues. Yeah. yeah. It happens. So they mirror plagues of Egypt. Uh, and then after this, we get this verse 13 in chapter eight. All of this is chapter eight, by the way. Uh, verse 13 says this. I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out a loud, vo- a lo- loud voice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not like W-O-A-H, but W-O-E, like trouble's coming. Bad whoa. Um, uh, and it says, woe to those who live on earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. So if you think that these first four were bad, the next three are going to be worse. Um, and so we get this little transition point uh, after they mirror the plagues. We get this transition point where the worst is yet to come. And we pick up in chapter nine. We see the fifth trumpet is a star fallen. Who's And in this star is fallen, you see an angel who has given the key, who's been given the key to the abyss. He opens the abyss. It says the smoke rises like a great furnace that darkens out the sun. Locusts who had the power, who have the power of scorpions, are to, are, are rise up from this. So I, I kind of uh, liken it a bit to um, some of the, my Lord of the Rings reference. But I think it's the first time all year I'm doing a Lord of the Rings reference. What? So, uh, but like, there's a moment where the the black crows are coming out of the pit, uh, where Saruman is there, and uh, and so, but it says this abyss is open, smoke like furnace rises from it, blackens out the sky. And it says these these locusts fly out. They are given the power. I mean, it's a it's a very descriptive, ridiculous like thing, and not ridiculous in the sense of non believable, but just ridiculous in the sense of like it's not fathomable to understand. And it says that they show up on earth. They're given the power of scorpions, and they're told to only punish those who are not protected by the seal of God. Remember earlier in chapter seven, we see the hundred forty four thousand. We see the multitude. Um, and it says that those who are not protected by this seal, who are not part of God's f- people, are then the ones who are sent to be tormented. Um, and it says that they couldn't kill them. They could only torment them for five months. And we get this uh, description of these locusts in, in chapter 9, verses 7 through 12. It says this, the, first, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their head. Their faces were like human faces and their hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. 
The sound of their wings was the sound of many chariots and horses rushing into battle, and they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that their tails had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. Again, not of uh, Left Behind series book fame, but that was a Greek name for this ruler of the abyss. And then it says this in verse 12, it says, The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. So we get this incredible description uh, of these locusts that came to earth to torment those who are not protected by the seal of God. And it shows that they are are fierce, they're uh, demonic, they're uh, creepy and scary and evil. But those of us who are, are... part of God's family, those of us who've crossed the line of faith, those who've said yes, we, if we're living during these times, we're protected from the torment of these beasts that are rising from the abyss. Uh, we get the sixth seal in chapter nine as well, where the angel angels are released to kill a third of the human race. Um, and the description of these horses are terrifying, um, but even more so if we read these two verses and continue chapter nine, um, it says on one hand, we get this description uh, of what these horses are looking like, what these angels are looking like. Uh, but then we get these verses in 20 and 21, which I would say are, are a little bit more fear driven. They should cause more fear and concern. It says this, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues. So at this point, the locusts have come. They've tormented those on earth. Uh, angels have been set down to kill a third of those living on earth that were not protected by the seal of God. And said, those of the who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, which cannot hear, see, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And I think the reason why that's a little more, that should create more fear or more terror, terror in us is because even in the sheer punishment, even in the... Uh, suffering and the loss. There's still this pride and this arrogance that rejects the goodness and grace of God. Because again, remind you, I mean, we could look at the very beginning of this and it's like, why would God even allow this? God is God is pouring out and punishing sin. He's, his wrath is against sin. And those who put their faith and trust in themselves and not in the salvation that belongs and can only be found in Christ. And so it's not a God is finding joy in punishment. He's he's just and he's gracious and he has let and tried to be very gracious and letting people have opportunities to come back to him. And we'll even see it later in Revelation where there is still this opportunity where God is still draw. I, I would read it as there's an implication there. So I'll get to that when I get to it. But the challenge here is like, God is pouring out wrath against sin and those who are following his ways and the, the hardness of hearts and the pride of the individuals that is not receptive to the grace and goodness of God. That is who is, is the wrath is being poured out and there's still no repentance. And it, and it leaves me a little like heartbroken for humanity because of that truth. We get to chapter 10. And we see this mighty angel on a small scroll. And we aren't told what was written on the scroll. Uh, it actually interjects quickly before there's ever a chance to read it, where John was told to take the scroll and eat it. Um, and then he said, hey, in chapter 10, there's this moment, hey, eat the scroll, uh, but go prophesy some more. So we don't really know it was on the scroll. We just know there was a moment where something was on it. And as John was getting ready to even record it, he was told, don't record it, eat it, and then go prophesy some more. Yeah, it seems like... 
uh, I, I said there's parts of this, parts of Revelation that remind you of Ezekiel and Daniel. So this is very famous. Ezekiel is, is yes. another person who has to eat a scroll. Um, and to, to me, it always just symbolizes being empowered with the word of God uh, or receiving revelation from God and then giving it out. So, and that's kind of where I, I would view it as well. But it is, it is kind of cool how those how those points connect there. So I, I love the way that Revelation kind of harkens back to the Old Testament in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. So this, we get the, the scroll moment in chapter 10. We then are in chapter 11, we're introduced to two witnesses. Uh, if you've read or seen the Left Behind series at all, you're familiar with the idea of the two witnesses. Uh, but it says this in chapter 11, starting in verse one, it says, then I was given a measure, measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I gr- will grant my only two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemy. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. So there's this massive moment in this shift where it's God again establishing his authority and sovereignty through the empowering of these two witnesses. And John is given this vision and sees this this reality play out where there's the foretelling of a famine of a drought of of suffering from a physical standpoint in the world as we know it and there's going to be war waged against the two witnesses Uh, they're given the authority to call out plagues they're given the authority to breathe fire from their mouths it's like a a a superhero type movie uh in its in the worst of ways Uh, but you see this dynamic and this incredible thing with these two witnesses uh, we then continue to read in chapter 10 and see, or sorry, chapter 11, and see that the two witnesses are killed and their bodies lay in public for three and a half days where no one does anything, uh, where the rulers of the world are celebrating, are beginning to puff up their chests and say, we're more powerful. Three and a half days later, they're resurrected and the world is stunned and silenced and it says and then they wanted to then again wage war against them but the two witnesses are called to heaven so the two witnesses then ascend into heaven and then we get this earthquake where it says a tenth of the city was destroyed and seven thousand people are killed and then we get this statement that the second woe is over and then we get to the seventh trumpet so we haven't even finished the trumpet yet so all of this happens in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet We get to the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verses 15 to 20. It says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant appeared in in this temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder, peals of thunder, rumblings and peals of thunder, sorry, an earthquake and severe hail. And we get this powerful moment as the seventh trumpet is blasted where there's worship, God is showing up in full force. 
you get all of the natural supernatural or natural phenomenon that accompany God's arrival. And we have the seventh trumpet blasted. Uh, and then uh, we get to a section in chapters 12 through 14, where we see these signs before God's final wrath is being poured out. And they really serve as a prelude to the bowls of wrath. So we have had the seven trumpets. We've had the seven seals, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets. And now we're getting ready to get to the bowls of wrath. But there's this prelude moment um, where there's signs of what's to come before the bowl, these bowls are going to be poured out. It starts in verse 12, where we're introduced to this woman, a child and a dragon, where a woman becomes pregnant with a child. The dragon arrives ready and in position to devour the child when the child is born. Child ends up being born, is immediately called to heaven, and the woman flees to the earth uh, for time of rest, of recuperation, of equipping, um, and then a battle ensues. And we get this in chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. It says, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, fought, but he could not prevail. There was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, who is this great dragon, that's he's John is identifying who the dragon is. It says, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their own lives to the point of death, which just that verse, if I'm being honest with you, is probably one of the most profoundly moving and challenging verses in, in the book of Revelation, where it refers to those who stood firm, those who continued uh, in, in, in part of God's family who were protected by the seal, so to speak. It says that they conquered him, referring to, to Satan, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the point of death, where they are willing to die because of the gospel and the truth of Christ. And it's such a beautiful and powerful picture that I think is one of those one of those verses that should challenge and inspire us as we continue to grow in our faith, uh, is that we would hold tightly to the blood of the lamb, which is the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the word of our testimony that we would not be bashful or shy away from, the truth of the gospel and how it's transforming our lives, um, and even to lead us to the point where we don't love our lives, even to the point of death, but where we're able to hold tightly to the hope and truth uh, of, and the promise of eternity and fulfillment in Christ. Uh, it says this in verse 12, as we wrap up that section, it says, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows his time is short. And so we have this moment where the dragon is then cast out of heaven because he can't overcome Michael and the angels. And then he decides to wage war against the woman, but he can't overcome and conquer her. So then it says he turns to wage war against his offspring or her offspring, sorry. Um, and though, and this is alluding to those who, the, who uh, obey the command of God and hold firmly to the testimony of Christ. So the enemy then at this point, the Satan at this point is waging war against humanity, those again of God's family. And then we get this chapter 13, where we see this beast from the sea arises, or I guess arises, but rises up from the sea. And as the dragon is standing on the shore, the dragon then empowers the beast, gives him the authority uh, to then speak and to lead. And it's this crazy uh, uh, story and imagery happening. It shows that the dragon has seven heads. One of its head was fatally, fatally wounded, um, and meaning it was like one of the heads was dead. Um, but then it was all of a sudden healed, like it comes back to life, um, which is a, 
a a um, a weaker version of Christ's death and resurrection. But it says, people on earth worshipped the beast as it blasphemed against God. So they aligned their hearts and lives with the tangible, weaker, uh, knockoff version of Christ's resurrection, um, death and resurrection. And they worship and follow the beast instead of God. Um, And then we get a little further on in chapter 13, another beast arrives from the earth that carries the same authority and then speaks like the dragon and performed great signs and wonders and deceived those who lived on earth and led everyone to place a mark on their right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell without this mark. This is what's referred to as the mark of the beast. Uh, this is an alignment of individuals who are, are deceived and worshiping the, uh, the knockoff version of a sovereign God. And, and we, so we see this war getting ready to take place. But in chapter 14, we, we see the vision that John is sharing shifts uh, to the Lamb of God and the 144,000. Uh, and there's this beautiful moment in chapter 14 of purity, of holiness, of power that I think is really worth taking time to read. Um, not today on the podcast, but as you're reading, it is something I, I love that it shifts away from the this dark and, and dreary and sorrowful moment with Mark of the Beast, but then it shifts to what's going on in, in heaven with 144,000, where there's this real, honest, powerful, pure, holy moment. Um, that's really incredible. We then get um, in chapters, in verse seven of chapter 14, we get the, this picture of three angels flying overhead. And it says this, it said, he, referring to one of the angels, uh, said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then another, a single, second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel followed behind them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the, the wine of God's wrath, which is polar, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of the tor- their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image and or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write. So John's being told, write. So it says, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. And it's just this really crazy, incredible moment where you see this powerful, holy, pure moment in, in heaven. Then three angels arrive and it says it's foretelling Babylon the Great, which is not necessarily the Babylon of Ezekiel and the exile time frame, but it is one of the, one of the greatest nations in the time. They draw forward that recognition um, to help draw, understand what's really going on as far as the rulership goes. And the beast is, is compared to, is called Babylon the Great, so that it's the foretelling of the uh, the beast failing and falling of the sovereignty and power of God triumphing, and also the foretelling of punishment and wrath against not just Babylon the Great, but also anyone who follows and 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 follows the beast um, and worships the beast. We see in chapter in the final piece of chapter fourteen here that there's this harvest and reaping of the earth, um, and you see the 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 allusions back to Daniel. You see the allusions even back to Matthew again a bit where it is this of an angel shows up with the sickle and begins to reap uh, the harvest of the righteous and the faithful. 
Uh, and it's and it's a really final moment of God's protection provision in this section of uh, of Revelation. Then we're shifting into chapter fifteen, and then we're introduced to the seven bowls of God's wrath. Uh, these are like this is why I think Revelation gets a bad rap because there's so much heaviness and wrath and punishment being poured out against those who have rejected God and followed the beast. But it is it is a very big thing. Um, so we get this vision in chapter fifteen, verses one through eight. It's the entire chapter, so I'm just going to read it. It says, then I saw another great awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. So this is the the, the finality of God's wrath being poured out with the bulls. Uh, He says also in verse two, I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with, with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? This is the song they sang. Sorry, I should have said that. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. And he says, after this, I looked in the heavenly temple. The tabernacle of testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues dressed in pure bright linen with gold, golden sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God from its power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were completed. So we get the seven bowl, oh, these bowls of wrath that are poured out over those who have rejected him for the beast and then received the mark of the beast. So this is the final wrath, the final triumph. I guess it's not the final triumph, but it's the the triumph of God over the, those who have followed the beast, who have given their lives to the beast and rejected God. And the first bowl is those who have rejected him are covered with severely painful sores. Second bowl is poured into the sea and turned it to blood and all the life in the sea died. The third bowl poured into the rivers and springs. They themselves became blood. And here we get this, this side note or highlight that the, the blood that is that it's becoming is the, is like the blood of the saints. It's those who have given their lives, who have become martyrs. Um, God is, is using their blood to, I guess you could say it this way in some respects, like I want to be careful because it's only Christ's blood is the one that purifies, but it's this almost like this restoration, this redemptive moment where we see Christ on the cross when he died, his blood was shed, and that's what provided redemption for humanity. We almost see this, this moment where God is re- redeeming the life and the blood that was spilt by his by his saints. And so it's, it's a pretty powerful picture to see that to, and, and to understand that. We get the fourth bowl, which is poured on, onto the sun, and it's and it became able to scorch the people with fire. And then it says in this in this fourth bowl section that they did not repent of their works. The fifth bowl is poured out on the beast in its kingdom, total darkness. It says that people people nod their tongues because of their pain and they blasphemed God, but they did not repent of their works. Again, another tragic line there. And then the sixth bowl is poured out on the great river Euphrates, and it dried up. And it says this in sixteen twelve through sixteen. It says. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and it was dried up and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains close so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So assembly of the kings at the so they assembled the kings at the place called called in Hebrew Armageddon. So it says 
final battle scene coming to its culmination. We see John sees this moment where uh, the the demonic spirits are are coming forth. They're the ones that have been speaking and leading and doing the miracles or the supernatural works. Um, and then they're rallying the the kings of the earth, the kings of the world, to assemble together to fight against God in this final battle of Armageddon. We then see the seventh bowl is pour, poured into the air, where flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, severe earthquake like none other before it hits. It says the city is split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was given a cup filled with with wine of his with the wine of his fierce anger. It says the islands and mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones weighing 100 pounds in weight fell from the sky on the people. They blasphemed God because this was so great. And it's this incredible moment where seven bowls poured out. The, the king kingdoms of the kings are of the earth are showing up to fighting against God in the great battle of Armageddon. Uh, and it shows in the seventh bowl that God is still showing his sovereignty, his power, and his might in this last bowl that's being poured out. In chapter 17, we're introduced to this woman and a scarlet beast and its meeting. And this is a crazy vision. Can I just be honest? As I was reading through it, I was like, there's so much going on here because it's just crazy and and, and a little weird. Uh, but this... That doesn't really narrow it down for Revelation. No, <laughs> not at all, lot. right? It's but And this one's like, it's set apart a little bit for me as I was reading through it. Um, and the simple way to understand it, I'll just simply say this, is it tells the future reign and the ultimate fall at, of Babylon and of the beast and, and of Christ, who's the land that conquers everything. Um, and so you have to see in the, in the, in the, in the passage here that the, the connection to the woman, the scarlet beast, um, and what this relationship is, um, what they represent, but it really is this culmination of, uh, of those who follow the beast versus those who are following God. Christ is the ultimate conqueror, and he's the one that's sovereign over all. Um, so and then chapter, so that's chapter 17, chapter 18, we get the fall of Babylon, the great and the world's mourning. Uh, and what I mean by the world is those who have followed the beast, they, they followed her. And then they, the Babylon, the great, which is again, the great beast, uh, is defeated and the world mourns because they live their lives with under the, the beast rulership. They mourn because they lose out on the pro like they lose because they, they're mourning because they're the one they followed lost and they no longer have, um, the wealth and prosperity and the things that, that, that the evil and corruption brought them. Uh, so there's this great mourning as Babylon the Great falls in chapter 18. And then in chapter 19, we get uh, this celebration of heaven. Uh, and we're introduced to this rider on a white horse in chapter 19. And this is where you begin, I would say that you begin the upswing. So if the last how many ever chapters from 7 to 18 11, 12 chapters have been just one heavy thought after another, one tragic moment after another, where the wrath of God is being poured out in succinct three different ways and levels and layers, culminating in the great battle, culminating in the in Babylon the Great, the beasts uh, being defeated. We then get this celebration in chapter 19. It says, and after I heard something like the sound, uh, like a loud voice of the vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God 
who is seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the one who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet. This is John saying, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. So he fell at the feet of the angel, speaking these things to him, showing him these visions. It says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we get this massive party, this massive celebration, this victory um, uh, uh, is is just being reveled in and celebrated. And then it's talking about the, the future marriage. And this is like in the New Testament, we have different moments where Paul is alluded to the church being a bride, followers of Christ being a bride, those who've remained faithful and steadfast through all that has happened and played out. The saints, the multitude, the bride of Christ is ready. They've adorned themselves. They've, they've been clothed in, in pure linen because their righteous acts, their faithfulness, their steadfastness. And we get this culmination of celebration of victory. And now this, um, this arrival of the wedding, of, of the, the marriage feast. And then we're introduced in verse 11 to 16, like I said earlier, of the white rider. Um, and so then John shifts from this massive celebration party. The bride is ready. And we see this. Starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress for, for, of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He, he has a name written on his robe, on, on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we get this powerful moment in this powerful picture of Christ, who's the white rider on the horse, leading the army of God into victory and total defeat of the, uh, of the beast and his followers. And at the same time, this is also a picture of the groom's arrival where not only will he strike down the enemies of God, but he will also begin to, to receive his bride, who is the church ready to be received. Um, we get this continued in chapter 19. Um, it's the best in his armies come out to fight the white rider. So we have this epic battle that plays out. All of the, the world and the beast, his armies come and fight the white rider and his, his, his armies, the beast and the prophet, its prophet referring to the dragon, were taken hostage. So the white rider wins, takes the beast hostage, is thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest who follow the beast are killed. Then we get to chapter 20, and out of 22, we're coming to the end of Revelation. It says, an angel comes down in chapter 20 from heaven with the key to the abyss again. Remember, he came, one angel came down with the key and unlocked it. But this angel who has the key to the abyss also has a chain in his hand, seizes the dragon, binds him, and throws him into the abyss for a thousand years closes it, seals it, so that he could no longer deceive anyone on earth for a thousand years. But it says he must be released for a short time. There's a reason for that when we get there. It says Satan will then reign 
not Satan, sorry, the saints will then reign with Christ for a thousand years. And there's this moment in chapter 20 where you, if you've been in church a long time and you hear these phrases, millennialists, premillennialists, it's people who, it's, it's, this is why Revelation is so dense and so hard to interpret and have definitive, this is what it means. Um, but there's cur- some people who currently think that we're in the thousand year reign of Christ. Some people who think the thousand year reign is still to come. Millennialists are one who think we're currently in it. Premillennials are the one who think it's still yet to come, meaning the time of, of, of history, I guess you can say, of what we're living in right now. Either way, this section's significant because we we need to see the enemy rise once more, deceive again, and be thrown down for eternity. That's what happens. That's why there's this line that says he must be released for a short time, because we need to not just see God's sovereignty and Jesus's triumph um, and defeat, but also I think there's this a moment of redemption as well. There's a moment of patience. There's a moment of grace where when the beast is released again, uh, when Satan is released again uh, for a short time, he goes right back to what he was doing. He goes back to deceiving people or giving way, falling to, for his deceit yet again before Satan is thrown into um, the the lake of fire before he's thrown in a permanent and ultimate final defeat. Um, but we need to see in this moment, we get to see a glimpse of what's to come potentially of, not potentially, sorry, remove that, but we get to see what's to come when the beat, when the when Satan is defeated and he's given a chance, he's, he, people are still falling victim, even though they've seen this full thing play out where God is triumphant through Christ, they still believe deceit and lies. And then there's this final judgment, this final defeat where it, where the enemy, Satan himself, is thrown into the lake of fire and is and ceases to have dominion or rule because he's now defeated forever. Um, then we get this picture in chapter 20 of a great white throne, which is the, the place where there's judgment according to one's response to the gospel and deeds. This is where the book of life is your name written in the book of life. It's where a lot of the like 90s and early 2000s gospel presentations and tracks are, do you know, is your name written in the book of life? We see this picture play out where everybody's then held according to their works, according to their response to the gospel and how they live their lives in light of it. Um, and then we get to chapter 21 and 22, which is um, part of what the hope we cling to as followers of Jesus, where it's this new creation, a new city, a new Jerusalem being established. Uh, so I'm going to read a couple, a one section in 21, and then I'm just going to read all of 22 because it's the end of the Bible, um, and we get to end the podcast by reading it. So it says this in 21 verses 1 through 8, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling. With, is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And we've taken all sorts of time throughout this podcast to highlight those specific verses throughout biblical literature, biblical scripture. Um, and it's the culmination of that very truth where God's city is, is descending from heaven. He's going to be, he's now making his dwelling among humanity. And, and he has this powerful moment where I will be, they will be my people and I will be their God. The fulfillment of that Verse four says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. In essence, the side effect, the impact of sin is defeated, which means these things no longer have place or will no longer be in existence because of God's ultimate fulfillment and conquering and triumph. Uh, It says, verse five, the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. To one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they will share in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so we get this moment of the new creation, the new Jerusalem coming. God is establishing his throne. He's conquered. He's overcome. He says, anyone who does not hold to me and hold to my truth and my my standards will be cast in a lake of fire because I will be dwelling among my people, rich and pure. We get the new city of Jerusalem described where, where John is then going out, doing the measurements and describing the new city of Jerusalem. I'm not going to take time to read that. But then we get the conclusion of Revelation, the conclusion of God's word, um, which doesn't mean we should stop reading it because there's so much more to read. Yeah, you read it once. It's uh, fine. Yeah, we're good. Check Don't that off. Uh, but it says this in chapter 22, verses one. It's a little bit, 21 verses, but I'm going to read it because you can't stop me. It says this, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. Wait a second. Did you I put, put chapter 21. Ah, oh, biscuits. Now we have to pause the podcast and then come back immediately so you can read chapter 22. The listeners have no idea that we just took like 30 seconds to find <laughs> chapter 22. Because <laughs> I good. put chapter 21 in. Don't. Uh, this is what it says, chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. It's the source of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are, are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of, land, of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, because the Lord God will give him light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Words of Jesus. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So John at this point is removed a little bit from the vision. He's then being given instruction about what's to come and what he's supposed to do with everything he just saw. And the words of Christ appear, he speaks, or not appear, but the, the words of Christ are spoken to him from Jesus himself. And then we hear this, this kind of final direction from Jesus. It says, I, John, verse eight, and the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd shown me. But he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers and pro- the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Then he said to me, the words of Jesus, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness, and let the holy be still be holy. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to, to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It says, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Those are the words of Jesus. And then John says, amen. Come Lord Jesus. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. So we get this incredible wrap up, this incredible moment where there's clarity, direction, and and a, and really a beautiful dialogue from Christ to John, where John is then responding and then wrapping up and saying, hey, everything you've just read, everything I've just put in pen is true. It's faithful. It's reliable. Trust in Jesus because that's our hope and that's our protection from the wrath that's going to be poured out in the last days. And that's how Revelation ends. That's how the whole Bible ends. Wow. It's true. How about that? Well, that wraps it up, not just for our Bible portion today, that wraps up for our Bible portion this year of season five. Uh, But we do want to talk about what we learned today. Uh, For me, it just comes down to, I think you can take your pick of any of the churches at the beginning of Revelation and the warnings that uh, that Jesus gives to them. Uh, I think that the idea of making sure that we're always on our guard uh, is great. The idea of not being lukewarm, the idea of not giving into sexual morality, all these different things. Um, but the one that stands out to me, and it's always kind of stood out to me the most, is the war- the first warning, the one to the church at Ephesus, and the idea of we can be doing everything right when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to truth, when it comes to all these different things. But if we don't love one another, we're failing. Uh, And it's kind of the theme of all my readings today. (laughs) Like that was the theme of the warning to Ephesus. That was the theme of all of the letters of John. Just the idea that we need to love each other. That is, as Christians, we know that God loved us first and that we are called to show that love to other people. So I think it's a great application for the last one of the year. There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think for me, it's just the hope that I cling to as a follower of Christ. I think there is, on one hand, I remember as as a young, early Christian, really getting scared and fearful of the end times and what it might be, the tribulation, whatever you want to call it, like that, that, and Revelation is a scary book, but I'm, I find hope in my security in Christ. And I think that that evokes a peace and a confidence, but it also evokes an urgency uh, that I think we all should carry when it comes to living this life we currently are. It's not just about us and about our protection, but I don't, I, I believe it's God's heart to not want anybody to have to suffer the wrath that he has to, he's going to pour out on, on, on evil and sin and those who choose its ways. And so I think it's really important to, as we read Revelation and as we end the year reading Revelation, it's worth considering what does it mean for me to live in the hope of eternity, but at the same time, live in the urgency of the last days coming and, and what is required of me to love well, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to love my my neighbors and and friends and family that don't know Christ and create this draw and and desire to see them come to know Christ and have the same hope, the same security and the same protection that I get to that I get to cling to and hold on to in the midst of what's to come. And so I think there's a lot of anxiousness that can create creep in if we're not anchored to Christ and remembering He's the sovereign creator. He's the sovereign provider. He is over everything. And I think that's what Revelation displays. Nothing, no matter how great, how vast, how powerful, how miraculous it seems to be, any ruler that comes up, they all fail and fall short of the sovereignty and power of the true God who created us. And I think that's worth always being reminded of. And that's what I appreciate about Revelation. In the midst of all of the imagery and all of the... uh, depth and density. There's so much truth and hope that we get to cling to in Christ. So there you be. Well, we're also going to answer the last questions of the year. We didn't get caught up, Aaron. So uh, we'll, I guess not, not me and you, but if you haven't had your questions answers, your questions answered yet, they will be in the next season of let's read the Bible. So don't worry. We they're there. We see them, but we just haven't gotten to them yet. So here we go.
All right. So Aaron, this week there's two that came in. One of them is a long one and the other one is like a, it's another long one, but it's like rapid fire, <laughs> short questions. So Sweet. I don't know. The first question is this, uh, many times in the new Testament, it talks about how we will be persecuted for our beliefs that the trial of the followers of Christ we're, uh, we're put through. And that many times it references how we have to stand firm in our faith and reach eternal life in today's world, at least at least in the U S or at the very least in Texas, uh, Christians aren't persecuted for their faith. Our trials and tribulations center around work, school, kids, marriage. I understand seeking him and a relationship with him living in our lives as obedient Christians. But I guess what I'm getting at is how does this apply to us today? How can we show our faith in that way? Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be tested uh, as, <laughs> much, as much as I love God and feel like I'm strong in my faith. I don't know if I could place my son or daughter on the altar if asked. Uh, so that's great. I mean, the first one I would say is I don't think, I, I think the, we would, we would never be asked to put place our children on the altar in the literal sense of like child sacrifice. So, and, and it, cause it, it's, it's important to kind of get at that, I suppose, because when that's pre law that yeah. God, that God is telling that to Abraham, um, not that God would have went through with it anyway, but the idea there is that Abraham grew up in a time where child sacrifice was just a thing that you did. That was a very common way um, to appease the gods. And so when he's, being told by his new God, yeah, I need you to sacrifice your son. That's not like this crazy outlandish thing, I suppose, is the way I'd put that. So, I, yeah. And I, I know you don't mean that literally, I, I, but I'm just throwing it out there. I think yeah. sometimes we we misunderstand that a little bit there. Um, yeah, this is a great question. So we talked about persecution when it comes to, like, particularly when I, when I was talking about it with the churches in uh, Revelation. I think you're right. We don't undergo persecution in the way that the early church would have understood that word. Um, that doesn't mean there's no persecution at all. It just means that, and I, and I think honestly, a lot of what standing firm has to do in the American context is how we stand and less about the fact that we stand. Um, and I don't know if that makes any sense, but here's kind of my thought process on it. I think a lot of the persecution that we undergo is not dangerous for the most part. Um, a lot of the person we, a lot of the persecution we undergo is is words. It's hurtful things that people say. It's hurtful things that people get after. Um, and so I think one of the big tests for us is not just do we stand firm in the faith, like do we stand up to being thrown in prison, all these different things that aren't really happening in in the U.S. Um, but do we stand firm in love? Uh, when do we take to heart Jesus' words of love your enemies? And pray for those who persecute you. Uh, when someone strikes us on the cheek, do we turn and offer our other cheek as well? That's kind of what I think of is, do we undergo persecution well? Um, and I think a lot of times we, you'll, you'll listen to people and they'll talk about how, like, you know, we're standing firm and all these things, which is great. Like we need to stand firm in the truth. Um, but it reminds me again of the, the church in Ephesus. Do we stand firm with love? Do we show people love? Or are we being what Paul warned about in First Corinthians? Are we just being the noisy symbol and the clanging gong? Or do we have, do we, we, are we doing really well on doctrine, but are we not doing well on love? I guess that's kind of my, my thought of one of the applications for how we can stand firm in the midst of persecution day. I don't know if you have other thoughts. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, it's a question that is, I, I appreciate being asked because I think this is the wrestling match we all live in. And even as I, even as, you know, for me, even as we've read through and you've heard my different applications as I, I show <laughs> different thoughts. Um, but the idea of persecution in American context is not, is not really, it, it kind of fails in comparison to what other Christians have had to navigate and face in our current modern age. 
just not American culture for the most part. Um, and I don't want to minimize our persecution because I think you're right. I think it's how we, how do we stand firm? How do we serve Christ? I do think even going back to the, we may not be asked to sacrifice our kid, our child, literally. Um, but I think there are plenty of things that God asks us to lay down in in our everyday lives, whether it's the um, love of money, whether it's the my own pride and my own way of life or what's convenient or comfortable for me. Like, I think there are plenty of things. It's, it's I mean, we, we have a hard time walking across the street asking someone if they know Jesus, um, culturally speaking. And so I think there's a lot that we... Um, may not face in persecution because oftentimes God is first waiting for us to lay down our lives entirely. Not maybe, again, maybe not figuratively. I think there's moments where we may come face to face with life or death. And my hope and prayer is that I could live like the martyrs did and the early followers and the early fathers of the faith, where they willingly lay down their lives because of the hope and the truth of the gospel. Um, and, and I think there's something to be said about praying honest prayers of, of God, show me where I'm bigger in my own life than you and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring to our mind and to our lives, these things that we hold on to that would be idols. I mean, go back to John's last words, don't worship idols. Like what are the things in our lives that we are giving priority preference and obedience to that is contrary to the gospel, contrary to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Um, and, and that's a very big statement with a whole lot of unpacking. And it's really easy for me to say that on a microphone and a podcast, but it's a question I have to wrestle with every day of my life. I have God, where am I not laying down my life? Oh, I don't want to talk about that one. Let's talk about something different. Like there's, there's this give and take that I think God is so gracious and patient with me, but at the same time, he's like, stop relenting, be obedient and, and wrestling through that tension. So I think there's those tensions because as we step out in faith, I think we will face more persecution. As we lay down our lives, we will face more persecution. And it may not look like the early Christians or even the, the individuals from Revelation, but it's a, it's we will face opposition, we will face trials, and we will face challenges. But it, it hinges on our willingness to lay down everything God asks us to obediently, without reservation, without hesitation, saying, God, I trust you more than I trust what my own my own life can give me. So, uh, kind of a long answer to a, a great, deep, profound question, but one that I think I'm still wrestling through what it looks like. But also at the same time, I think we all can be challenged to do that too. So, there you be. All right. Second question. This is more of the rapid fire one. So here we go. Uh, it says that it was Joseph's tomb in Matthew twenty seven sixty, and in Mark, Luke, and John, it says it was a vacant tomb. Uh, what's the deal with that? Uh, both can be true. Yeah. It can be a tomb that Joseph owned and it can be vacant. So. Yeah. Matthew could have known it was Joseph's tomb even, and it wasn't a tomb that was used. So in essence, the vacancy means there was no other bodies laid in it, no other family members laid in it. Because oftentimes the tombs were family owned. They weren't just one person. It's not like a grave that we have now. It's like a, uh, a graveyard is how we would view it, is there were multiple beds and multiple places to lay family members and loved ones. Just like uh, when in the Old Testament, when Joseph says, lay my bones with so-and-so or Abraham, Isaac, and lay my bones with my family. Like they would, they would be laid together in a tomb. So the vacancy could very simply mean that there was nobody else in the tomb, but Joseph owned it. Yeah. And that's the, that, and that's even the in that, answer. even in that part of the tomb, like if you talk about how, if there's like a big group of tombs together, it could even mean that, yeah, there's a bunch of the family members are in, he owns this one, it's empty. So you yeah. put Jesus in there. Yep. Any of that. Uh, questions. <coughs> Sorry, listeners. Uh, why is it the Bible alludes to the Sabbath being Saturday, but it's known as Sunday? Uh, 
because that's that shifted after Jesus. So essentially, we worship on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose. Before that, the Sabbath was on Saturday in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know if you have anything out of there. No. Nope. Yes, pretty much that's it. Uh, why, why is it that Peter says Hades in his first sermon? Is there some symmetry there based on Greek beliefs and the time uh, at the time in which this was spoken? Or was it always used instead of the current term? Uh, I would say it's kind of similar to when in the Old Testament we see Sheol. Is yeah. the, it's the word for the grave. So when Peter's saying Hades, he's not necessarily saying uh, the entire the entire underworld, like Cerebus guarding it and the river sticks and all those different things. He's just using the standard Greek word for death in the grave. Yep. That's kind of the idea. Um, let's see here. When Peter... Oh, I'm sorry. I keep coughing. When Peter speaks, he makes <laughs> it you. sound as though all of the people delivered Jesus to the crucifixion, but I thought it was just the religious leaders. Uh yeah, so I think I think this is this is a fair point because yeah, it's I think sometimes we you'll hear messages where it talks about how on um, Palm Sunday they were all w- welcoming him in, and then on on a Good Friday they were all calling for his death. I don't think that's true. Uh, it is very much the religious leaders who were going for it and, and, and going for it. But P- Peter is speaking to the crowd. And a lot of them would have been complacent with this. A lot of them would have been fine with it. Um, I think Jesus was pretty popular and he had his group of disciples that went beyond the 12. Like he had a lot of people who were excited to see him, but there were also a lot of people who either uh, didn't trust him. They sided with the Pharisees or there were a lot of people who were kind of complacent with that. And I think that's what Peter's getting at in this moment is uh, they allowed this to happen. I suppose is another way I could phrase that. I don't know if you have any thoughts there. No, I, I mean, I definitely think it's, it's kind of a both end filter. Um, I think there is ownership that Peter carries and ownership as Christians we carry because the recognition of sinfulness is what really Jesus went to the cross for and held back. Um, but I think there is this recognition of um, religious leaders may have been the initiate, but they couldn't do anything without a mob. They couldn't do anything without people joining in and shouting the same things they were shouting. So I think it's kind of a both end filter. There you go. And the last one, Aaron, if you don't mind reading that. It's interesting how John is alluded to as the beloved, but Peter was chosen as the right hand of Jesus. It is interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps it up. <laughs> well, and to be clear, let's be honest though. John called himself the beloved disciple. Um, I, I think, sorry. I was going to say, I don't remember if there's anywhere else that it's even alluded to that being true. Um, but John calls himself that. And um, Peter was, um, I, 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 maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing this, but chosen as the right hand, I wrestle with the, is that true? Was he chosen? He wasn't chosen. He was the one to build the, build the and maybe that's the I, reference. I think Peter is kind of the leader of the, he's the first among equals totally. of the disciples. Absolutely. Yes. And so I, I totally understand that. And Peter may it was chosen, but you also got to remember like Peter, Peter's the most bold, audacious individual right. to do that. So it also comes down to wiring. It also comes down. I mean, we can say today, like we're all given gifts and, and talents and responsibilities with those gifts and talents. And so you see that God was using different people. I think John was, was a, was a, a voice of encouragement, love and affirmation because he understood the depth and love of Christ in a different way than Peter did. And that's why I think it was so powerful that they both really were pillars in the church early yeah. on. I think as I look at it from the outside, um, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus and John had the closest relationship of any of the disciples. And that comes to Jesus or John being the one who, the only one who is with Jesus when he's crucified. Um, I think probably Aaron is right where he's saying that Peter's probably just the one who's gifted. <laughs> like he's the one who had the the gifts in order to be the leader of the early church in that moment. And so John, if you read him, he comes across as kind of a, a, an introvert, um, someone who's, he doesn't speak up Soft-spoken very much. Soft-spoken and... Like even in Acts, 
he's with Peter, but he's not doing most of nope. the speaking. But so, and, it's, and I don't want that to take away from John because again, it's just different giftings. It's almost yeah. like a Moses and Aaron situation. Um, where... we, we've got to be careful that too. Like we read into our tendency to compare into scripture. Well, why, why is Peter, why, why is John called up 11 when Peter was the one that actually did the work? Like, and I'm not saying this with the tone, so don't hear that, but I think it's easy to sit there and compare the two together and be like, well, if John really is a beloved disciple, why wouldn't he be elevated to be the leader of the disciples? Right. Well, that's because that's not what God had intended for him. So I think that's the beauty of the body of Christ because Evan is a vastly different person and wired than I am, but it's not saying I'm better than him. I'm better to lead in certain capacities than Evan is. Evan's better to lead. This podcast is a great example. I mean, we joked about this for for years now, or not years, but for a while, like I'm the color man. I'm the one that adds a little bit of, of commentary, a little bit of charisma, a little bit of whatever. Evan really is the brains behind this. Like Evan, he really is the, 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 the one that holds this thing together and helps like, and he, and he would just in humility say things. I appreciate that, but it's not true. At the end of the day, like it's, it's not true. I don't it, appreciate it, it. It's the it's the dynamic of of leadership. It's the dynamic of of createdness. It's the dynamic of giftedness, um, and I think that's part of the, the challenge. And so, I and not to get on a soapbox and say this, and this is again, I don't think this was the tone of the question. So I want to be clear about that. But I do think it's very important to remember, like God calls, equips, and establishes who he calls, equips, and establishes. It's not a comparison. It's not a competition. It's not saying I need to be better than Evan. No, I'm wired differently. I interpret scripture differently. I read scripture differently. I preach differently. I communicate differently. But that's the beauty of the body of Christ, that we together can see something so beautiful happen within the podcast, and we hear stories of it. So I say that in the said, when you, when you look at Peter and John, they both led to the capacity and the confidence of God's calling on their lives. And Peter was a was a better front runner leader than John was. But John was a he was a better leader and then and, and he was more faithful, more consistent. He didn't waver. I mean, he did run away in the garden, yes. Uh, but he didn't reject Christ. Like you can, if you really want to play the comparison game, like at the end of the day, like they're both bring so much to the table and that's what makes them the, the dynamic duo, so to speak. But yeah. Um, yeah. It reminds Anyways. me of John chapter 21, where Peter, you know, God, Jesus tells Peter that you're going to be essentially how he's going to die. And then Peter goes, well, what's going to happen with John? And Jesus is just like, well, what's that to you? That's <laughs> kind of like, like, exactly. It's kind of, it's, it's, that's almost the right answer here is like, uh, why, why was John the beloved disciple? Peter was the one who was the, uh, um, at the right hand, it's like, yeah, what's, what's that to yeah. you? <laughs> and that's, I go back to the very beginning. Of it. It's yeah, it's interesting. Like it definitely is interesting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was so cool. It's so cool to see that play out. So I'm also realizing with this question, the first part says sidebar when it was, it was Joseph's tomb in Matthew's 2760. And then Matthew, Mark and Lucas says it was a vacant tomb. So I wonder if this, it's been, we received this question, I'm sure when we were going through the gospels. And so it's been long enough. I wonder if we made a mistake and this listener was correcting our mistake and then went into questions. So I don't know for sure, but if, in case that's the case, maybe we said that. I vague, you can blame me. Yeah. Well, I think I vaguely remember saying something about, I thought it said it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb at one of the gospel accounts, but I couldn't remember which one. So maybe that's what's happening there. So, you know, I, I, this very much. So our be, opening line was worth that. Like that was stupid. Our Why opening question. Our, my time. This beloved listener is listening to like, that wasn't a question. I was correcting you. And then I, I was being a thank dummy. Thank you for the, thank you for the input. I appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. Either way. So. I agree. He's right. You're wrong. Boom. Uh, well, she. I was going to say, or she's right. You're right. I didn't, I didn't put the name, but it is, a, it is a lady listener. All right. Well, listeners, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. And that wraps it up for me and Aaron's four and a half season run on Let's Read the Bible. Has it really been four? It's been, we done, yeah, because wow. you came in the middle of season one. So it's been a long time. That's it's crazy. The, it's the end of the era. Um, he's not sure he's going to come back 
anymore. I'm going to bully him into at least doing a couple <laughs> next year. So he'll he'll be he'll be back. I never point. said I won't be back. I just said I don't know when. It's not goodbye. It's see maybe you I'll see you later. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, have a uh, have a Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful rest of the year. We will see you all January. Uh, I think it's the fourth. Is that first sometime Thursday? in January? Yeah, that's when the first one will drop. Uh, pay attention. We'll put the uh, the new Bible plan in the podcast notes. So make sure to start it on January first. Thank you all so much for listening. Yes, it's been a great year. It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing more about it in the coming year. Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year.